Good morning. What beautiful music we have had this morning. I feel like we've been blessed with two special musics because the offertory was so wonderful. And, and not to mention the praise time we also had with the Suncoast singers. Let's uh, bow our heads before we get into the book of Mark. And we'll be going through a few other stories as well in Scripture. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you for you are God and you are able to work in ways that we cannot. I pray, Lord, that you would make our minds to understand your word better and better each and every day, but particularly now as we seek to open it and gain insights and understanding into the theme we're going to talk about. Father, I pray that to thank you that you are not just present, but that you are omnipresent, that you can be up at Cedar Lake and you can be here and you can be gathered anywhere where your children gather this day to worship you. You're such an awesome God and I pray that you would be with us now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark and I've been doing different devotionals as I go along at the village school. Now school is out, so I haven't been there. But during as the school year has gone on and as I've been reading through Mark, I've been going through some of the miracles, some of the stories that are mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. There are so many in the Gospels, in all of the Gospels. They're, they are some of my favorite books there. But I've come to Mark chapter 8, and these are the verses. Uh, we read them as part of our scripture reading, but we will read them again. Uh, verses 11 and 12, and it reads, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he, Jesus, sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And I have to say that, to me, this text stood out because it's unusual on two fronts. And I... I like things to make sense, and this doesn't make sense to me. Um, I like things to be just so. I'm very systematic in the way I do things. You can ask my wife. Um, maybe that's why I'm in systematic theology as well. It does help, but I like things to make sense. What is surprising to you about this text? Is any of it surprising? I'm curious. If anyone has a hand and wants to respond, please do. Just make sure you talk loud enough that I can hear. Okay, I'll just tell you. But to me, it's surprising, firstly, that the Pharisees are asking for a sign. I mean, what came just before? Feeding the 4,000. What came just before that? Jesus heals someone who's deaf and mute. I mean, go right back to Mark chapter 1. And in the very first chapter, after we see uh, John the Baptist preparing the way Jesus is baptized, he gets tempted, he calls some of the disciples, and then we see from verse 21, and I'm just reading some of the headings in my Bible, Jesus casts out an unclean spirit, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, after Sabbath sunset, a whole bunch of people come to Jesus and they're healed, and Jesus heals a leper. That's just in chapter 1. 
Then chapter 2, you have Jesus healing the paralytic. And let's not go through each chapter and list everything that Jesus has done. But we get here to chapter 8, and the Pharisees are saying, give us a sign. Hello? Where have you been? Secondly, I'm surprised by Jesus' reply. Because he says, why does this generation seek a sign? As surely I say to you, no sign will be given, even though he's been doing all these miracles, these wonders, these signs. What did Jesus mean here? What were the Pharisees asking for? And so this has, this has driven me to the theme of today's discussion. And I want to present one central question that we'll be looking at, though there are several subsets that I will mention and probably more. I don't intend this to be an exhaustive study on the topic. But the central question I want to focus on today is what is the relation between signs, wonders, miracles, and faith? And let me just further qualify a little bit about what I mean by faith. I'm not talking about faith in the generic sense, which many people today uh, use, I believe in something and so therefore I have faith. Whether it be a higher power or, or they will say, I believe in God, but then after that, when you ask them, what is God like or, or what does he ask of us to do, everything falls uh, away back then. So I'm not meaning it in this generic sense. I'm also not meaning faith in the sense of a list of propositions, or, or, or statements of belief, so that if someone was to ask us, you know, what do you believe, or what do the Adventists believe? Well, here is our fundamental beliefs, our faith, you know, uh, the 28 of which I do not believe is, are exhaustive. These are 28 out of a whole bunch of, doct- a whole bunch of doctrines that we hold, but the 28 are what makes us unique, I believe, amongst other denominations as a set. So what kind of faith am I meaning here? I'm meaning faith in terms of a personal faith in God. To trust God that he is there for you personally. Through your circumstances, through the situations which you have to face, that he's there for you. What is the role or the relation between signs, miracles and wonders and that personal trust in God that no matter what I go through, God is there for me? Does such a relation exist? Should such a relation exist? Should it not? If so, why or not? So this leads me to some of the secondary questions here that I'm going to ask. Should one's faith in God be based upon miracle signs and wonders or not? And of course, we can say, you know, base, let's further qualify that. Should we base it primarily on miracles, wonders, and signs? Perhaps we would say no, But can they be based perhaps as a precursor to our faith and confidence in God? Can something happen and once we witness it, once we experience it, cannot our hearts and our expression overflow in such a way that we we can say, yes, this is our God and I will serve him forever? Is that an appropriate response to have in the presence of a mighty miracle? If the answer to that is yes, that that is appropriate, then why don't we see more miracles today? If the answer is no, we really shouldn't be basing our faith on miracles, then why have any miracles at all? Where where do we strike the balance? 
What's the balance between God working and God, as you will find out, seemingly not working? How do we make sense of that? Because let's, let's be honest, and I can speak, I'm more than happy to confess that when I was younger and I was reading the Bible, I was confused. I read the stories and I was wondering, why did God answer someone's prayers and not answer another prayer? Why did God deliver his people at one stage and God didn't deliver his people from their enemies at another stage? It seems like God is inconsistent. It seems that way. How are we to make sense of this? And and I want to couch this in the setting of how many of you have ever met a person? I know I have met more than one. I would believe in God if, if I had a vision, if I had a dream, if, if there was something supernatural and spectacular that took place, I would believe in God. But until then, I'm just going to go on doing whatever I want to do. Have any of you met someone like that? <laughs> I, I had a friend in Australia, who was an Adventist, who also struggled with the, with the concept, who said, I believe in God and that he's there. I'm just not sure if he cares for me personally. And of course, the background to that was, where is the evidence that he is working? Where are the miracles? Where are the signs? When I need him most and I pray, why do I sometimes feel like there is no answer? How do we make sense of this? Well, We're going to take a look at a few stories in the Bible. Uh, You can start turning to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Um, Sorry, chapter 11. The book of Numbers, chapter 11. Uh, But we're going to take a look at a few stories in the Bible, and, and particularly what I want to take a look at as we talk about these stories is how did God work in those stories? What did he do? And, and primarily, what was the human reaction to what God did? Because this is, from, from this interaction, as we go through the stories, we're going to glean some lessons for us today on this very topic. And again, I mentioned this isn't going to be an extensive study, for we could be here for many, many days and weeks and months talking about the stories in the Bible. But If I was going to say, name me one generation in Scripture, just one generation in Scripture where, above all other generations, they witnessed the most miracles, and not just miracles in general, but such widespread, uh, probably I would say, corporate miracles on their behalf, which generation would you choose? Okay, the time of Christ. We had that in first service as well, and I would not disagree the only difference, you will see why I qualify, why I didn't include that. What, what other generation? Exodus. Okay, now, I'm not denying that Christ did great miracles, but during the Exodus, it was done in such a corporate way. Jesus healed so many people, but it was very, it was very uh, localized, so that if you weren't with Jesus when he healed the deaf man or made the lame to walk, you would only hear about it secondhand. But when you went through the ten plagues of Egypt... You didn't have to hear about it from someone else. You were there. You witnessed it. When you walked through the Red Sea, was this for one person, one family? This was for the entire nation. They walked through the Red Sea. I mean, what about the manna that fed them in the wilderness? Literally food from heaven in a waste place. And not just 
one day, two days, a week, a few months, but for 40 years. What's more surprising is where did the water come from? A rock. What about the, the cloud that followed them by day and that shaded them when they had to move? That turned into a pillar of fire by night. Again, every single day for 40 years. I mean, I know of no other generation in Scripture that witnessed such a magnitude of God's miracleness, signs, that He is there for them, yet what kind of response did he get from the people? Let's take a look at some of those. Well, before we go to Numbers, what happened in Exodus chapter 32? For those of you who know your Bibles very well, when Moses was up on the mountain, the people said, we don't know whether Moses is coming back or not. What did they do? Made an idol. They went to Aaron and they said, please make us a God that we may worship Right then, after they had even Mount Sinai, where they heard the voice of God themselves. And uh, for those of you who were part of our, our latest Vespers series on the book of Exodus, you heard Dr. Davidson say that God did keep the people at bay from the mountain for three days until the consecration was, was finalized. But after on the third day, he said, come up. He wanted the people to draw near him. But the people were afraid, and so they chose to stay away, even though God wanted to bring them close to himself. What amazing experiences they had, but very soon, very quickly, even after their miraculous experiences with God, they turned after the familiar, after what they were used to, and followed false gods. Notice in Numbers chapter 11, this is a story that comes a little bit later, but again, the people are complaining, nothing new. They have done that for some time. But verse 4 tells us a little insight here. Now the mixed multitude, so I'm in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. Now the mixed multitude who are among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now tell me, the first time manna fell, how excited would you have been? I mean, you're out in the desert. The first time water flowed from a rock and you were that thirsty, were you not thankful for that water? Were you not thankful for that food? But what happens when God keeps providing for them, they somehow get used to it. It becomes ordinary to them, so ordinary that they feel like they can complain now. And they're longing for the place where they had come out of, where they were slaves, where they were treated harshly, where they were in bondage, just so that they could enjoy some of the food which they were able to, as they say, freely partake there. The cucumbers, the onions, the leeks, the garlic, the fish, and now they are dissatisfied with the miraculous. What about a few chapters later in chapter 13, we have the story of the spies that go out into the land. And what happens? Do they bring back a good report or a bad report? Both. Good. <laughs> Trick question there. Depends who you talk to. If you talk to Joshua and Caleb, what was the report like? It was great. We're well able. It's indeed a land of milk and honey. If you talk to the other 10, 
Not so good. There are giants there. The land is surely good, but we will be engulfed by the inhabitants. We are not strong enough to take it. Notice, uh, uh, let's just start reading from uh, chapter 14. Sorry, that's the last part of verse 13 where they talk about it. Verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, verse 1, it says, So the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only... We had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And then they talk about selecting a leader who would take them back. Of course, Joshua and Caleb speak out again, and they say, yes, no, the land is good. It's a good land. Give it to, you know, God can give it to us. And notice verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me and how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? God has reason to be frustrated, to be angry. I have done all these things for them. How, what's it going to take to convince them that I love them, that I care for them, that I want what's best for them? Amongst all the signs which they received, they still didn't believe that God wanted, God had their best interest at heart. So, a few lessons we can glean from this generation. The first one, very simply, is signs and wonders do not always elicit a faith response in God. I'm sure that for Joshua and for Caleb, their faith was strengthened amongst all the signs, saying, we are well able. If God is with us, who can be against us, right? But for many of the other people, and let's not mention peer pressure, that which is familiar has a strong influence. Habit and familiarity are strong motivators to stick with what is known. To somehow be able to dismiss that God is truly working. Why? Because it's it's ordinary. It's become habit. Let's go to a different generation further along in the story. If we go to the book of First Kings, chapter 18. The book of First Kings, chapter 18. We see Elijah, the prophet. And he has gone to King Ahab and he has asked that 450 of the prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah would be joined on Mount Carmel. And there he proposes a test. And he says, the God that answers by fire, he's the true God. What do the people say? Nothing. They're still too, too shy to say anything. But they think it's a good test, evidently because they stayed there. And sure enough, the prophets of Baal do their thing. They dress their bull, they, they chant, they shout. And Elijah kind of, as the day goes on, he's waiting and kind of uh, pricks them a little bit in the sizes. Maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's away on a trip. So they say, well, more extreme measures. So they start cutting themselves. Can you imagine? I, I like to put myself in some of the Bible stories. I think we should all do that because that's what makes the Bible come alive. But how long do you think it would have taken you 
on Mount Carmel, seeing what the prophets of Baal are doing, to start saying, things are getting a little weird now. You know, okay, they're, they're, they're chanting, they're shouting, doing whatever, but when they start cutting themselves and, and nothing's happening, I mean, is this really the kind of God we want to serve? And then the time comes for the evening offering, and Elijah, is there any grand, does Elijah shout? Does Elijah chant? Does, he makes a simple altar, puts the bull on, Ask them to pour water over it so that the miracle is even more miraculous. And talks to God as his friend and asks him to answer by fire that the people may know that he is God. And does God answer? Absolutely. And what is the people's response to what they saw? Notice verse 39. 1 Kings 18 verse 39. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord... He is God, the Lord. He is God. Is it appropriate in the face of this miracle to have this response? Absolutely. It's, there's no question. One of the lessons I learned from this story is that they replied in this way as a direct correlation to what they had seen. In fact, the first part of the verse says, now when they saw it, when they saw the miracle... Then they worshipped. Then they confessed that the Lord was God. And if we continue reading in the story, and if we read uh, the spirit of prophecy in, in Prophets and Kings, we know that what Elijah did here really did start a work of reform in Israel. Uh, many people started turning away from the, the foreign gods, the, the idol worship, back to the true God. And Elisha in his ministry continued that. Elijah reestablished the school of the prophets. Elisha built them up even more. And people were starting to know more and more about who God was and uh, what his law was and his requirements for us. But notice that a book later and a few chapters later, if we go to the book of 2 Kings chapter 17, 2 Kings chapter 17, we have beginning from verse 5 onwards, we're not going to read the whole thing, but which kingdom comes and takes over Israel? The Assyrian kingdom. They come, they take them away, they disperse them. And, and notice the words there. Let's read from verse 9. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things which were not right and they built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There they burnt incense on all the high places, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, for they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to the law which I command, commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Did God warn them? Did God show his love and care for them? Yes. Notice verse 14. Very enlightening verse. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffen their necks, 
like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They were just like their fathers who did not believe, even though there were miracles. So what are some things that we learn here? One is that the reason God does miracles is not just so we would trust in his power, but so that we would trust in him. Again, he's a personal God. He wants to be there for us in our lives all the time, not just when we go through a difficult spot and we feel like we need him then. Notice that miracles, although they elicit a faith response at times, they do not always do that. So in the face of a miracle, some will turn to God and others won't. Others will dismiss it. What about, we'll talk about another story here, we won't go there. What about the story of Jonah and Nineveh? In a similar sense, we we see what's happening here in Israel with Elijah, Elisha, and then just a generation after Elisha died, they are taken into captivity. Something similar happened with Nineveh. Did God send Jonah there? Yes. Did he warn them? Now, was there any miracle that was performed that we know of from Scripture for the Ninevites? Did Jonah call fire down from heaven? I mean, perhaps his story was miracle enough the sailors, uh, I, I, almost, I always laughed at that as a kid. Uh, I don't know why. I still find it. I, just, I wish I was there in the story to see the faces of the sailors because the Bible clearly says that they were exceedingly afraid before they started talking about whose fault this may be because the storm was just so great. And then when they found out that Jonah was the cause and he told them to throw, away, to throw him overboard, they tried to do everything they could not to do that until finally they lost out all hope and they threw him overboard. And what does it say as soon as they threw him overboard? What happened to the storm? Just like Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, right? Peace be still. And the disciples were like, who is this guy that even the elements obey his voice? I can just imagine them there fearing that they're going to lose their lives. They throw Jonah overboard and... And then the Bible says... They were exceedingly afraid and they worshipped and gave sacrifice to the God of Jonah because of who he is. They hadn't experienced anything like that. But Jonah gives them a warning and the city repents from king all the way down to animals. If we could say that animals repent for the king decreed that no one should eat, not even the animals should eat, that there should be a day of fasting, that they should gird themselves with sackcloth and ashes, that things should not be normal. And of course, God spared the city, but a few years later, we know from Nahum, again, the prophecy comes out, now it's too late. You have gone back in that way. The reform didn't last long, even though the miracle was given even though the warning was given. So let's go back to the Gospel of Mark and take a look at a few more lessons. Mark chapter 2. We have the story of the paralytic. Beginning from verse 5, it reads, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoned in their hearts, 
Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven to you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We've never seen it like this, yet the scribes were there. And what is their heart doing? How can he forgive sins? No one can forgive sins but God. And he's obviously not God. Do they strike you as a group whose hearts are open to hearing what Jesus has to say? Or or are their minds already made? We could go further in Mark chapter 3. And there we have the healing on the Sabbath. (coughs) Notice Jesus here said, um, starting from verse 1, he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might what? Accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. What group was there? The Pharisees. Chapter 8, who came to Jesus asking for a sign? The Pharisees. What, what more can God do for those who have hardened their hearts? What more can God do? Perhaps the reason he couldn't give them the sign, perhaps the reason Jesus said there, Why does this generation seek a sign? As surely I say to you, no sign shall be given is because the kind of sign they wanted can't be given. For whatever sign is given, they would simply dismiss it. After all, every time you see them coming to Jesus, they're trying to trip him up. They want to test him. They want to accuse him. They're watching him. They're they're there to gain information of how they might strike him down, how they might plot his demise. What about Peter and Judas? What do we learn from their stories? Uh, We're not going to read the text, but we could go to Mark chapter 14. Peter was so sure of himself that evening, right? When, When Jesus, predicting his death numerous times in the gospel, they have the Lord's Supper there, he initiates that, and he tells them that they will flee and forsake him. And what does Peter say? Not me. I'm with you to the end. And what does Jesus say? Oh, Peter, you will deny me tonight. How many times? Three times. Did God know Peter better than Peter knew Peter? Does God know us better than we know ourselves? For sure. 
What about Judas? Judas was a disciple. He was one of the 12. He was, he more than anyone, you know, Jesus moved around a lot, but the disciples followed him often. Probably Peter, James, uh, John, and Andrew were the ones who were with Jesus very closely uh, most of the time, but even the other disciples were with him. Even though not all of them went on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were all there waiting for them when they got back. They heard those stories. They saw Jesus perform miracle after miracle. They heard all of his sermons, all of his wisdom, not just when he was speaking publicly, but when he was teaching them privately in the home. And yet Judas's heart was still, I believe he's the Messiah, but he's going to be my kind of Messiah, so let me help him with that. He had all the same experiences, all the same evidence that the other disciples did, and yet he chose to betray his Lord. Let's try summarize some preliminary lessons that we can learn from these stories. The first one, God knows us better than we know ourselves. Therefore, he knows what our reaction would be in the face of a miracle, sign, and wonder. Perhaps we should not be so confident or proud about where our faith currently lies. We shouldn't say, I'll believe if, as though that's the, as though that's the silver bullet, you know, or I'm not sure exactly what the expression is. I mentioned this for first service, and no one came to me and told me what the expression is, but that, you know, that hammer that falls down, that last thing, that all I need is a miracle and I'll believe. Are you sure? Can you be so confident? Rather, we should be humble and let others speak of our faith rather than boasting of our own faith. Keep in mind relationships, and this is precisely what God wants with us, does not work on the principle of what is in it for me. And I should say it doesn't work primarily on the principle because it is true that in any relationship, there are needs that need to be met and needs are met for the relationship to continue. But primarily, any long-lasting relationship doesn't, is not based on what's in it for me, but on what can I do for you? That has to be the basis. So is our relationship with God going to be based on what can you do for me? What's in it for me? Or is it going to be, what can I do for you, Lord? And let's be honest, God has done quite a lot for us. It does seem from the stories that we looked at, and we, should, we could surely go through more, that at times of great ignorance, and I would definitely count the, the Exodus generation, that initial generation which came out of Egypt, as a generation that didn't know God very well. In fact, if we read the spirit of prophecy, and I, I, I believe this with all my heart, that Moses was given the book of Genesis while he was still in his 40 years in the Midian wilderness tending his father-in-law's sheep. He was given that. And I believe part of the reason is so that when he went to Egypt and he said, and remember, he even had to ask God, when I tell them that you as God is, are calling him out, what's your name? Like, who do I tell them is calling you out? In, in the sense that they aren't even going to know. And God says, tell them the I am has sent them, has called for them. 
And of course, he's the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so that when Moses went there and he said, hey, it's, it's the I am, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and when they looked at him and they said, who are they? Moses could whip out that book and say, this is how God has been working in your family. God chose you. You're a special people to him. This is what he wants for you. Won't you come out and worship him and be with him? So it does seem at times a great ignorance or at times as we read in Elijah's day and Elisha's day of national or widespread apostasy that God does send messengers often accompanied by mighty, mighty miracles to call the people back to a walk with him before it's too late, before the wickedness gets to such a state that there is nothing more that God can do to call them back. We see this, but we also see that sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And sometimes in the very same generation, it worked for some and it didn't work for others. What was the factor? What, was, what made the difference? Was it not the heart? Was it not a heart that was open to seeing God work, to, to wanting to have that relationship with him rather than closing oneself off to him? No matter how great or how enduring some miracles may be, after all, the children of, of Israel had 40 years worth of miracles, some will forever remain unconvinced that God cares for them personally. What more can God do in those situations? What more can he do than he is already doing and working in their lives? Remember, the purpose of the wonder is not to trust in God's power. God doesn't do something mighty so that he can say, yeah, I'm strong. He doesn't do that. He doesn't want us to just say, oh yeah, you're a powerful God. He wants us to know that he cares for us, that he loves us. He has a personal love, a personal interest in us. That's why he works in our lives and helps us with our situations. And I'm sure if I ask for people to raise their hands, which I'm not, many of you can testify that God has worked in, in your life in such a way that it wasn't just random or chance. It was supernatural. You felt God there. Even though it may have seemed like something ordinary took place, God was working. God was opening doors which should never have been opened. And he does those things so that we can trust him more, so that we can love him more. Remember, one, one of my favorite texts, this always gets me, is the book of Job, chapter 19. Job suffered a lot. And it's very easy for us to, to remove ourselves somewhat from what Job went through because we know the end of the story. We know that Job, at the end of it, was healed. We know that his possessions were twice as much as what he started with. And so all in all, we think, yeah, he suffered for a little bit and that was it. But when you read some of the things that Job poured out to God, how much he longed for death at one stage, how miserable he was, 
And even at this stage in chapter 19, God still hasn't spoken to him. He has no idea what's happening to him, which the reader does because we read the first two chapters of Job. And so we know there's something bigger going on here. Job knows none of that. All he knows is that he's suffering and is likely going to face death. And his response here, beginning from verse 25, is, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Do you see how emphatic he is? It's going to be my eyes. My eyes, my flesh, I'm not going to have to view from a distance. I know my Redeemer lives, and one day I will be able to stand face to face with him. When he sees death as the only outcome, this is his response. What faith, what trust. No miracle has been performed for him. No sign, no great wonder. He said, God gave and God take away. God took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What amazing faith. Another principle that I see from these stories, those who were with Jesus saw more of his signs and wonders than those who weren't with him. His disciples saw far more of Jesus' miracles than the, than the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. Why? Because they only came when they wanted to, again, trip him up or find something for which they could accuse him or turn against him. They weren't there following him on all of his travels, but his disciples were. And as a consequence, his disciples got to know more of his character, more of who is this guy, what is this guy all about? They saw him take up the children. They saw him feed the hungry. They saw him heal all kinds of diseases. They saw that Jesus cared about people. You know, it strikes me as really, um, really interesting, I should say, that people who get to a stage where they start doubting whether God is there, they go through a tough time in their lives. They say, well, you know, I don't really feel God is there. I'm, I'm not going to read my Bible today. I'm not going to pray as much as I used to. I'm not going to come to church I'm not going to come to prayer meeting. How is God supposed to prove himself to you? How is he supposed to work when you cut him off from all the avenues through which he wants to reach you and show you that he cares? And so many people will say, yeah, I'll believe in God if there's a miracle. But until then, I'm not reading. I'm not coming. I'm not praying. Could it be that miracles are taking place all around them and they just don't have eyes to see it? Remember, physical presence matters, but I want to be fair, it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee that just because you read your Bible every day and because you come to church, Judas was part of the 12 disciples. It's the heart that is the factor here. Okay, last, last two points here. God works miracles even in the ordinary if we're open to seeing it. We didn't go through these stories, but there are several 
that we could mention. What about Genesis chapter 24, where a bride is needed to be chosen for Isaac, and Abraham sends his servant? Was there any fire that came from heaven? The servant had a thought, said, please let this be a sign, but it was an ordinary sign, something very, he didn't ask for, you know, a flame of fire to be above the head of the woman who was, who was to be the wife of Isaac. He didn't ask for, you know, a vision to see her. He said, whoever offers to, to give water to my camels as well, I'll take that as a sign. And sure enough, it was. It seemed ordinary. What about, what about Daniel chapter 1? When we read that the chief of the eunuch that God gave Daniel favor in the eyes of the chief of the eunuch. You know, sometimes we meet people and we just hit it off. We click with them right away. Sometimes it doesn't click right away. You need to get to know each other more. But do we not see that as a miracle, as God working? As God making connections in the seemingly ordinary? What about David and Goliath? Let me ask you, did David strike down Goliath because of his skill? Or because God was with him? Or was it both? It's not like David didn't know how to use a sling. And if we read what, what's true about those who lived in that time and how they used their slings, some of them were extremely accurate. Why can't God work with us to produce the miraculous? What about the book of Esther, where God's name isn't mentioned even once, yet we see God moving and working behind the scenes in such a way that his people are preserved from almost certain extinction. Tell me, what about the taste of a fresh raspberry? Is that not a miracle? Have we eaten so many that it's just a raspberry to us? I mean, that God could pack so much nutrients, so much good stuff, make it taste so wonderful in something so small. Is that not a miracle? Now, for all the women in the audience, many of you have, some of you may be right now, holding life in your womb. Is that not a miracle? Do we just say, well, you know, billions of women in the past have given birth to children. I'm just having another one. We don't talk like that. It's a miracle. It's special. It's unique. Let's not take for granted the ordinary miracles that take place each and every day. For if we do, we may be in danger of making the same mistake, the same error, which the Pharisees and the Sadducees made during the time of Jesus. It just, there was a way to excuse it. When they saw Jesus on the cross, they just saw a man on a, on a tree. While angels and those who loved Jesus saw the Savior of the world, the Son of God, dying to redeem humanity. The same event seen in two different ways. And I honestly believe that this is going to be the wonder of wonders throughout all eternity. Because as I read through Scripture, I find that for the most part, miracles fall into two categories. They have to do with physical healing and they have to do with redeeming, calling people back. And oftentimes we shouldn't separate the two because 
as we just read in the story of the paralytic, what's easier, sins forgiven or to be healed? Well, it's the same thing. Take up your bed and walk. In fact, in Greek, the word to save and to heal is the same. So the wonder of wonders is that in heaven, how many of us are going to be sick? None of us. How many of us are going to need to be redeemed? How many of us are going to need to believe in God? (laughs) None of us. But Jesus will still bear the scars on his hands, on his feet. We will know that God cares for us throughout all eternity because we know how much he gave for us. Last point. Often it's the people who are with Jesus and who have already opened up their lives to him as Lord and Savior that themselves become the miracle makers. All the stories we just read, God is working through people. He worked through Moses. He worked through Elijah. He wants to work through you and me. What, what's the first book that comes after the Gospels? The Acts of the Apostles. But we know it's really the Acts of God through the Apostles. But yet it's what they did where they moved forward, where God was working through them and they achieved amazing things. Amazing things. God used them to perform miracles. And so here's the point. Rather than waiting for a miracle, why not be a miracle for someone else? Why not be that person that acts in the life of someone that gives them perhaps that word of encouragement that comfort which they need, that help in a time of need so that they know that God does care for them, that God loves them. Notice you have this quote also in your bulletins, Acts of the Apostles, page 49. The more closely believers have walked with God, the more clearly and powerfully have they testified of their Redeemer's love and of His saving grace. The men and women who through the long centuries of persecution and trial enjoyed a large measure of the presence of the Spirit in their lives have stood as what? Signs and wonders in the world. Before angels and men, they have revealed the transforming power of redeeming love. And I ran out of time in first service, but for second service, I'm going to read just one more quote. This is found from Testimonies, Volume 2, page 631. God cannot display the knowledge of his will and the wonders of his grace among the unbelieving world unless he has witnesses scattered all over the earth. Notice the weight of that passage. God cannot display that unless he has witnesses scattered all over the earth. It is his plan that those who are partakers of this great salvation through Jesus Christ should be his missionaries, bodies of light throughout the world to be as signs to the people, living epistles, known and read of all men, their faith and works testifying to the near approach of the coming Savior and showing that they have not received the grace of God in vain. So this is my appeal to you today, to let God in, to see the miracles that take place all around us each and every day, but more than that, to be the miracle in someone else's life. Let's sing our closing song, and then we'll close with a benediction.